Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. A fella, actually three guys, made it into heaven. And once St. Peter let them in the door, they realized there were ducks everywhere. Like, God must love ducks. There's ducks everywhere. And um, St. Peter said, now listen, guys, the ducks are really important, so don't step on one. They're like, well, what happens if we step on one? He said, I'm just telling you, don't step on a duck. They're like, all right, and I don't know what to do. So they're kind of kind of moving and trying not to step on a duck. And, and sure enough, the first one, you know, steps on a duck. And here comes St. Peter. And he's dragging along a lady you would not want your son to marry. You know what I'm saying? And she's wearing a Texas Longhorn shirt. And <laughs> she's cussing up a storm. And sure enough, St. Peter handcuffs the lady to the guy that stepped on the duck and said, happy eternity. Yeah. The other two guys, their eyes are that big. And like, okay, not going to step on a duck. You know what I'm saying? And then about two days later, whang! You know, one of them just forgot, accidentally stepped on a duck. Here comes St. Peter, and he's got yet another woman you would not want your son to marry. She's wearing an Alabama shirt, you know, <laughs> chanting, F-E-T, F-E-T, you know what I'm saying? And like, you stepped on the duck. He handcuffed him and said, happy eternity. And the third guy, like, a lot of times he don't even leave his little mansion. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't want to risk a duck. And uh, lo and behold, one day he was out and about, and all of a sudden, here comes St. Peter, with an absolutely beautiful, gorgeous woman. Of course, she was wearing an OSU shirt, right? And so here she comes, and, and Peter handcuffed her to the guy. And he's like, I, what? He's like, I don't understand. I don't get it. What, what happened? And the lady said, I don't know, but about three minutes ago, I stepped on a duck. Beginning our holiday, our Christmas series, and um, the title of this series, a word we don't necessarily use a lot in our modern English vocabulary, but if you have read older translations of the Bible, like specifically like the King James translation, um, it's a word that you, you might see. So I'm going to put Matthew chapter 1 up there. Just, I'm going to put just a couple of verses in the King James, and then we'll switch back over to what we kind of typically preach out of, which is the New Living. And Matthew chapter 1 says, the book of generations of, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, okay? So Matthew's making a very specific point, and I'll get to that in a second. It said, Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. So we don't use begat a lot, but contextually, like looking at this, you can kind of quickly figure out what it means, somebody had a kid, right? So the Greek word um, begat is gneo, and that, that doesn't matter, but, but it, it typically has two meanings. The first one is the obvious meaning that we see here in Matthew chapter 1 where somebody had a kid. It means to father a child or father children or to conceive, to bear, or give birth, okay? But in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish sense, it can also have another meaning, begat. It can mean, and this is important, I want you to catch this meaning because it'll, it'll connect some dots for us in a minute. One who brings others over. 
to his or her way of life. Like we would say that to convert someone, right? Now, Begat's most famous usage would be in Matthew chapter 1 and then in Luke chapter 3, where these gospel writers are giving the lineage of Jesus. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only two of the four go into the detail of Jesus' ancestors. Mark, as we all know, just goes right to work. Mark just gets right to the ministry of Jesus. John doesn't go there. But Matthew and Luke, they give two lines, if you will, of the ancestors of Jesus. And both have their unique twist to them. Now, it's going to feel a little bit this morning like I'm jumping all around in history. I just I want to preface this with that we're going to deal with three historical eras in the Old Testament because of the lineage of Jesus, because of the begats, okay? The first era that we'll talk a little bit with is around Abraham, who was the person that God made a covenant with, and through that, the Jewish nation, the Jewish Hebrew people came to be, okay? We're going to deal with the time frame of Abraham, And then we'll fast forward about 2,000 years and we'll get to King David. And King David was the second king of the nation of Israel. And then we'll go about another 1,000 years and we'll get to the birth of Christ. So what we're talking about today is going to span about 3,000 years. And because we weren't there, there's no YouTube videos, right? It's hard for us to understand. So I apologize that I'm going to talk about this part of history and then this part of history and this part of history, but that's what Matthew and Luke are doing. They're walking through history and, and through every one of these names, if you were a good Jewish person, you would have understand the context around Abraham or David and so on and so forth. So that's the purpose for these begats. Now Matthew starts his gospel his telling of the story of Jesus with this lineage of Jesus' ancestors. Luke waits a little bit. You don't see the lineage until you get to about Luke chapter 3. Matthew starts with Abraham. Luke starts with Adam and creation in the beginning. Okay, So Luke is going to give us some different characters than what Matthew is going to do. Because Luke, obviously, is going to give us Adam. He's going to give us a guy by the name of Methuselah. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Older than Methuselah, right? Methuselah lived, according to the Bible, to be 969 years of age. He's the oldest person ever lived according to Scripture, right? And then he'll give us Enoch. The Bible says that Enoch walked so close with God that he was not, meaning he didn't have to experience death. God just took him, okay? So... In those earlier parts, because Luke begins at Adam, he's going to give us some characters and names that Matthew doesn't necessarily give us. They both land to Abraham. They both get there. And then they run from Abraham to David, where their lists are very, very similar. Might refer to people as different names, or might refer to a grandfather instead of a child or, or whatever. Okay? And, and then they run from David down to, ultimately, to Jesus. Matthew has 27 generations from King David to Joseph, adopted father of Jesus. Luke has a different number. He has 42 generations that run from King David down to, really, Mary. And there's a lot that goes into that. You can chase rabbit trails and wire their lists a little bit different. Why 27 generations? Why 42? You can get into the fact that they they wrote those according to sevens in, in Jewish writing and so on and so forth. Right, And so Matthew's list is a little bit different. Mary's list is a little bit different. Um, Matthew describes what we believe. We, we believe what Matthew was after was the lineage of Joseph, which would be the legal lineage of Jesus. 
okay? Luke describes the lineage of Mary, which would be the biological lineage of Jesus. And I'm gonna bore you with how all this plays out. I'm telling you, because there, there's, there's a difference in, in the list, if you will. So when you kind of stop and you kind of dig in a little bit, and like if you understand scripture and how Jesus came to be, why is the lineage of Joseph even a thing? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to put a big word up here. Okay. Some of you have heard this before, some of you are familiar, but some of you maybe not. Maybe you're new to this whole Jesus thing or new to New Testament and the, the words that go with it. So I'm going to give you a big phrase. It's called immaculate conception. Which are like, ah, what is And I can kind of, you know, you can kind of listen to it and kind of hear what it means or, or what you think, but, but that's a reference to how Jesus was conceived. Immaculate conception. Let me say it a little bit clearer, a little bit cleaner miraculous conception. Now, even if I don't know the story, I can figure out a miracle took place here. Something miraculous happened. So we're talking about begats, right? Abraham begat Isaac. He had a kid. I'm gonna do my best to keep this as church-friendly as possible, but again, we're talking about people having babies. So in human biology, or what we refer to as real biology, not the one where there's 52 genders, okay, and you get to pretend to be whatever you want to be, okay, a male and a female engage in an activity that we will call for today's conversation procreation. Mommy, what's procreation? That is a great dinnertime conversation. BK just ain't going to go there, okay? You know what I'm saying? Right? In order for a woman to conceive, in order for a woman to get pregnant, a man has to plant his seed in the womb or the reproductive parts of a woman in order for conception to take place. And by the way, we believe life begins in that moment at conception, okay? In all of humanity, there are three people who did not experience that full measure, if you will, of biological conception. The first person, if you go all the way back to the beginning, was Adam. In the beginning, God created, okay? By the time he gets to Adam, Genesis 2, 7, it says, then the Lord formed the man, that's Adam, from the dust of the ground, he breathed life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So God took some dirt, and he formed Adam, and he breathed life into him. There was no conception, there was no male seed that was planted and turned into a woman's reproductive organs, right? There was no umbilical cord, which leads to a theological, an age-old theological debate. Did Adam have a belly button? He might have had a button, but he never had an umbilical cord because he never spent time in a womb, all right? You're welcome, okay? Genesis 2, verse 22. It says, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and then he brought her to the man. So God looked down, saw that, Adam was down there, there's dirty clothes everywhere, the house is not clean, the guy's starving to death because nobody's feeding him, and then he says, this is not good, okay? So he basically puts Adam to sleep, did surgery, pulled a rib out of Adam, and we assume much of the same process of what he did to create Adam, he took some dirt, incorporated the rib, and breathed life into this now woman that we'll call Eve, and brings her to Adam. She was not conceived. She did not come out of a womb. Okay. By the way, Romans chapter 5 and verse Corinthians 15 call this Adam the first Adam. Because he was. He was the first man created. 
But then they refer to Jesus as the second Adam or the latter Adam or the last Adam, if you will, because Jesus is now the third person that doesn't go through that entire biological conception process where a man plants his seed in a woman and life is conceived. Jesus didn't go through all of that process, okay? So he too is unique. Mary never did the thing, procreation, right? She never did the thing that a man and a woman do in order to get pregnant, in order to conceive a baby. Basic biology, you only get pregnant if a man plants his seed inside of a woman's womb. Mary had a miracle, the miraculous conception. The Spirit of God miraculously planted a seed in her womb. So she conceived, but not the normal way. Jesus went through a womb, but not like other kids would because there was no biological father. God was his biological father. There was no human biological father. God miraculously planted that seed in Mary's womb. Big theological idea, but if it makes sense, please say amen. Okay, all right, we're good. All right, thanks for, no, I'm just, okay. So God's spirit is what, what caused Mary to become pregnant. It's this miraculous or immaculate conception. So Matthew gives this lineage, lineage of Joseph and his descendants. The problem is it's not Joseph's seed. Jesus is not biologically, he's not blood kin to Joseph. Joseph just adopted Jesus, but he's not blood relation. So what Matthew is giving is the legal lineage of Jesus. Joseph adopted Jesus, okay? Luke does give a blood kin lineage. He does give a, a biological, and, and Luke goes all the way through all the kinfolk and gets to Mary's father, a guy by the name of Eli. Eli was Mary's dad, making him Jesus grandfather. Why is this important? Why is the miraculous conception important of Jesus? Because number one, it was holy. There was no lust. There was no sin. There was no temptation. I mean, she might have known when it happened, but maybe not. We don't know those details, but God's spirit planted the seed inside of her womb and Jesus was conceived. Fully God and fully man. Okay, You just need to know she didn't do the normal things that you do in order to get pregnant. So a couple of, couple of notes about Matthew's lineage because that's where we're gonna kind of camp out today. Okay? He starts with Abraham because Matthew puts a focus on God's promise to Abraham that goes back to Genesis. Okay? When, when, when Abraham was getting of age, he's getting old and he's like, God, I don't, I don't have any kids. You've blessed me greatly and I'd love to give all this stuff too. I'd love for my family name to be carried on, but I don't, I don't, I don't have any kids. I guess I'm gonna have to give all my stuff to my hired hand here and God's like, nope. I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And then he promises him this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And I know it might feel a little bit generic, but it is a promise that God gives to Abraham about the coming Messiah that would eventually, 3,000 years later, be Jesus. He said this, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, meaning Color don't matter, nationality don't matter, race don't matter, gender don't matter. 
For God so loved the world, God so loved the nations of the world that he gave his only one begotten son named Jesus. And Jesus would shed his blood so that the nations of the world, if they would place their faith in him, would have a pathway to be in relationship with Christ. And my friends, that is a blessing. And that's the promise of this Messiah that God gives to Abraham. And Matthew wants to focus on that promise to Abraham. Okay? So we're at Abraham. Now we're going to fast forward 2,000 years and we're going to get to David. And we're going to talk about God's promise to David, which is why Matthew listed David in this lineage of all these names that we can't even pronounce, okay? David was not the first king. He was the second king. There was a guy named Saul that was the first king. David was not related to him, but David becomes the second king of Israel. He brought Israel to a place of peace with all of its surrounding nations, David's living in a really nice house, in a really nice palace. He feels a little bit embarrassed that here he is in this nice palace and and we're having church out in a tent. Like the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God's presence, that was out in a tent, that was out in a tabernacle. And, And David starts to feel embarrassed by that and he wants to build a temple. And he goes to basically the prophet. So man, I wanna build this. And God come back and says, no. Listen, it's not for you to build my house, but listen, David, I am going to build your house. Not physically, not of wood and stone and roofs and shingles, but I'm going to build your lineage. I'm going to build your house. And by the way, your house, your, your line will rule forever. And it doesn't mean that your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids and your great-great-great-great, they're always going to be the kings of Israel. He's talking about an eternal king that you and I now have the luxury of knowing that is Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Everybody with me? So both Matthew and Luke take the lineage of Jesus all the way through David. And then at David, they start to split and start to bring up different characters because Matthew's talking about Joseph and Luke is talking about Mary, okay? Um, One other thing about Matthew's lineage of Jesus that kind of, like if you understand the culture of ancient Israel, it kind of pops off the page a little bit. Luke doesn't do this, but Matthew does. And in the time that they wrote this, in the time of Jesus, Israel and even you know, most of humanity was a highly male-dominated culture, meaning generations were only counted and measured through sons. So if you were a man and all you had was a bunch of daughters, it ended with you. And it was a very highly male-dominated. So that's why Luke's list is all just a bunch of names that are men. But Matthew does something different. He actually includes four women and the story and the lineage of Jesus. He mentions a woman named Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and he eventually lands on Mary. Four women, okay? So, real quick, I just want to look at those women, if you will. Just, like, if you're one of those that, oh, what's her story? I'm that way. Like, I'm, I don't chase rabbits. I chase herds of rabbits. You know what I'm saying? So I just want to kind of give you some addresses in the Bible if you want to go back and well, well, why did he mention Rahab? And you go look at this. Man, this week when you're reading your Bible, you can go, go, go back and, and you can look at the story. So Rahab, her story is found in the book of Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua is the story where Joshua and the army of Israel, they're going in to conquer the promised land. Okay. The first big city that they come to is the city of Jericho with big, tall, 
fortified walls. Remember, they marched around it and blew the horns and the walls came tumbling down. That, it's that Jericho, Joshua chapter two. So Joshua sends some spies into the city of Jericho and like there comes this point in time where people kind of don't recognize them and what are you doing here? And by the way, we know the Hebrew army's right over there. And so a prostitute by the name of Rahab saves their life. He said, listen, I'll help you, but you gotta help me. When, because I know God is with you. When you come in, will you spare me and my family? And they do, they do. She saves their life and they save her life. And Rahab marries into a Jewish family, into the Jewish culture. She is begat. Remember, there's two definitions. The first one is to conceive, to give birth, to be born. The other is to convert, to convince somebody to come my way. And Rahab converts into the Jewish society. And she is an ancestor of David and eventually Jesus. Then there's Bathsheba. That is one of the more famous women of Scripture, not necessarily in a great way, because she had an affair with King David. Whether how the story plays out or what have you, I mean, she was not a woman of a great reputation. She had an affair. Don't, don't know a lot of people that have named their kid Bathsheba. Come on, David. Come on, little Bathsheba. Like, we just don't name our kids that, right? Okay, she had an affair with David. Listen, she's a lady of a questionable reputation, but she certainly served a purpose in the kingdom of God. So I've talked about two of the four. Mary is, I mean, she's the mother of Jesus. But then the third one is the character I want to jump into today is Ruth. And I'm going to, we're going to have story time with BK. I'm going to tell her whole story and just kind of walk you through the story. I encourage you this week, if you want to go read the book of Ruth, it's incredible. What we're going to see is she was not Jewish by birth, meaning she was not bloodline descendant of Abraham. She was actually from Moab. And I'll get to that in just a second. One scholar refers to all three of these women, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba, as women of shame. And the point he's trying to make, and listen, they might have had a past, but they certainly served a purpose in the kingdom of God. Sarah wasn't listed. Eve wasn't listed. The women of faith, like the women that, that life went well for them or they made all the right choices, they're not listed. It's three women that are women of shame and life had given them some bad turns, they'd made some bad choices, but God redeemed their story for their good and his glory. It's a big lesson for all of us. You have never failed so far that God cannot use you for his kingdom purpose. And that's what this story is about. We're gonna take a look at some of these begats, some of these characters that kind of had a rough past, if you will, but they are a part of the promise and the fulfillment of the Messiah. So I wanna jump into this, the book of Ruth, it's absolutely beautifully written. We believe it was written by the prophet Samuel, who was the prophet that anointed Saul to be the first king and then anointed David to be the next king. And it's almost written in poetic. We don't understand that reading it in, in English, but it's absolutely just beautiful. Its language is captivating. And it begins with the story of a Jewish family that relocated because of tough economic times. There was a severe famine in the land, and they decided that they were just going to relocate. And by the way, in, in the scope of all this history, the book of Ruth happens, it's kind of tucked in there with the book of Judges. There's not been a king yet. David's not been king. Saul's not been king. It's like there really wasn't an, um, a monarchy, if you will, for Israel. And, and so they would get in trouble and God would bring a 
judge to kind of lead them out of that, that's where the book of Ruth comes into play in that era of the judges. So you have a man by the name of Elimelech that quite, I mean, if you're going to be real about this, he failed to trust God. The economy turns bad and he doesn't trust God. He's like, I'm going to put matters in my own hands. And he and his wife, and they have two boys by the name of Malin and Keelan, and they leave Israel, and they go to the neighboring nation of Moab. My wife asked me last night what I wanted to wear today, and I said, baby, by the context of the sermon, I probably need a sweater vest. She goes, well, we're not doing that. So I'm not wearing a sweater vest, but it's this kind of sermon, right? It, it just is. Okay. So let me back up. Where did Moab come from? What, what, why, where, where are they at? Stick that map up on the screen for just a second. You can see that the Moabites live just kind of across the Sea of Galilee from Judah, and their neighbors, they're south of the kingdom of Israel. Okay, so let me, let me tell you where Moab, or the Moabites, if you will, came from. If we're back in the time of Abraham, he had a nephew who traveled with him and moved with him to where they are. God blessed both of them, and so all of a sudden they have so many goats, Cattle, sheep, cats. Good Lord, those things reproduce really fast, right? They have all these things, and so uh, they like split up. So Abraham goes this way, and Lot, who's his nephew, goes this way. And what was this way were two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and whether you're a Bible scholar or not, you understand Sodom and Gomorrah because they were just wicked and evil cities, so much so that God had had his fill done enough of the wickedness that came out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sends an angel. He's like, listen, I need you to just go da boom, you know? So the angel goes in and he goes to Lot and said, this is about to get real ugly. I'm here to get you and your family out. So the angel escorts Lot, his wife and their daughters out. The story where Lot's wife turns around and looks, she wasn't supposed to, turns to the pillar of salt, okay? And so they get out. And I don't want to go into all the details because they're Weird details that I don't want to take the time to explain, but after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot has a son and names him Moab. And he becomes the forefather of the Moabite. Okay, so back to the story of Ruth. Limelech and Ruth and their two boys, they stop trusting God. We're going to take matters into our own hands. We're, we're going to leave. And they go to Moab. While they are in Moab, Elimelech dies, and the two boys die, but the problem is they were already married. They had married Moabite women, and God had said, listen, 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 don't let your sons marry foreign women, and don't let your daughters marry foreign men, because this is what's going to happen. They're going to turn your sons to worship their gods and turn away from me, and they're going to raise your grandkids to worship those gods and turn away from me. Elimelech, he's just, like in the context of it, it doesn't say this, but like he's just given up on God. Life has been so hard, I'm just going to go figure it out on myself. And he leaves Israel, and he takes his wife and his two sons, and they go to Moab, and things don't go well. His boys get married, but then Elimelech dies, and the two boys die. So here you are with Naomi, and she's got these two daughters-in-law. That's the correct way to say it. I had to Google that. Okay. And Naomi's like, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to go home. Like, I followed my husband here. This hasn't gone well. She literally says, God's not been good to me, and I'm going to go back home. At least that's where my family is at, and, and maybe some of my siblings or my cousins or whatever can help me. And she looks at daughter-in-law number one, um, 
Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, okay? and she was married to her son, Elon, and she says, listen, just go back to your people. Just go back. And Orpah goes, done, see ya. You know what I'm saying? She's like, I'm gonna go back. We know nothing else from her after that. She probably went back, married a Moabite man, had Moabite babies, and so on and so forth. We know nothing of her after she parts ways with Naomi, all right? Then she looks at the other daughter-in-law by the name of Ruth, and she said, baby, I can't, I can't help you. I can barely take care of myself. You, you have, you're young, you're beautiful, you have your life ahead of you, you have no, just, just go back home to your people. And I love the way that Ruth responds to her. Ruth chapter one, verse 16. Ruth replied, listen, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. This is Ruth talking to Naomi when Naomi's trying to run her off. I will go where you go. I will live wherever you live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely. If I allow anything but death to separate us. Naomi saw that Ruth was stubborn, I mean determined, right? She said nothing more. Verse 19, so the two of them continued on their journey when they came to Bethlehem. Now that's a familiar town to us because that would be the birthplace of Jesus, the city of David. The entire town was excited by their arrival. Girl, is that Naomi over the side? I haven't seen her in 10 years. Girl, hey, girl. You know what I'm saying? Like the whole town's like, you know how a small town, how, no, we don't know how gossip can go in a small town, do we? No, that doesn't ever happen here. Right, and listen, there's a little bit of drama. I'm, I'm probably adding too much. There's a little bit of drama. And she goes, don't call me Naomi. You kind of put her with a southern accent, it goes better. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Just call me bitter. Listen, I'm an OSU fan today. Just call me broken. Just call me sad. Downtrodden. You know, there's, there's a little bit of drama mixed in here, but you get the essence of the story. One daughter-in-law goes back to Moab. One daughter-in-law makes this promise, wherever you go, I'm gonna go. Whoever your people are, that's my people. Who, whatever God you serve, that's the God that I am going to serve. In this moment, Ruth, Ruth was begat. Remember, there's two definitions. There's one to conceive, to bear, or, or give birth, and the other is to convert. In this moment, Ruth makes a decision that I want the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want him to be my God. And in that moment, she makes this choice. I love her response. I'll go where you go. I'll live where you live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. They arrive in Bethlehem, new nickname and all, Common Mara. The only problem is there are two women that have absolutely no way of supporting themselves. They were totally going to live upon the generosity and the benevolence of the people of Israel. So God had given Moses some commands. In, in the book of Leviticus 23, throw this up there because it, this is what they're banking on in order to just live. God says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field and don't pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you for I am the Lord your God. Poor and foreigners, that would describe Naomi as poor and Ruth was both poor and a foreigner. 
So their only means of supporting themselves was to go harvest the crops that were leftovers, that the landovers left out on the edges. Oops, dropped one. Well, I can't pick it up. That was the only way that... And so Ruth was the only one that had the physical energy. We don't know how Naomi was, but Ruth would get up and she would go out and she was literally hoping to just gather enough loose wheat. And it could take her half a day to gather up just enough wheat to make a little bitty small loaf of bread that they might have one meal a day. As luck, or maybe God's providence, not that those are the same thing, the field that she goes to was owned by a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz just happened to be related by marriage to Naomi. He was a kinsman, if you will, of her husband, Elimelech. Okay? So Boaz sees that woman. He's like, he asks, hey, who's she? Like, hey, that's the woman that's with Naomi. And, he's, he, and he tells them, hey, you just leave her alone. Let her pick whatever she wants to. If she wants to come up in here and pick with you guys, she can have anything that she can put in her basket and then she can pick. And then he goes, hey, young lady, come here. And he tells her, if you need water, there's the water bucket. What's mine is yours. You go get it. If you need food, you come help yourself to our food. I, he basically says to her, I've heard your story. You left your family, your nation, your people, and you've come and you've loved a woman that you're not even kin to except by marriage. You've been loving and kind to her. And so that day, Ruth just goes on to fill her basket of wheat, and then she goes home and she tells Naomi this story. Throughout the entire harvest season, Ruth is able to harvest and store up enough food that would get them through the non-harvest season, basically be our winter, right? One night, Naomi has an idea. And she goes, you know what? Boaz is kinfolk. And in the Jewish culture, when you married into the family, you were in the family. Okay, Like if a woman married a brother and he didn't give her any kids and he died, it was just automatic. She was now married to the next brother. Okay, I mean, that was part of the Jewish culture. And by the way, if all the brothers then died, then they would start looking at cousins, nibblings, that's the word, right? And then and nephews and all that type of stuff. And Naomi remembers that. And she goes to Ruth and she said, listen, Boaz can actually marry you. He's actually eligible because he is a family kinsman. So she sends Ruth on this mission in the middle of the night. Are you guys okay with story time with BK? He said, listen, you need to go reveal to Boaz, hey, if you want to get married, I want to get married. You know what I'm saying? So the story, like it's a beautiful, it's four chapters. Just go read the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful story. And in the context, we understand that Boaz is older, either had been married and lost his wife or whatever, but for some reason he is single, he's older, doesn't think he's very good looking, okay? Ruth most likely is younger, a beautiful woman, Boaz is even blown away that she would be willing to consider marrying an older, not so good looking guy like him. Apparently somewhere in his life, Boaz stepped on a duck. This is how this beautiful love story ends. Just about done. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the, woman of the, then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord, you have been provided a redeemer. Remember, she showed up bitter, and now the women of the community are celebrating with her. May this child be famous in Israel, and by the way, he is. 
Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast. She cared for him as if her own. The neighbor women came and said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. A Moabite widow, no hope, no future, husband's dead. She finds a route to redemption. And God used her faithfulness to be a part of the Christmas story that Matthew included when he wrote the lineage of Jesus. Now, we don't, we don't have Ruth ornaments on our tree. We don't put her in the nativity. But the reality is the Messiah is there because of what she did with her life. Ruth's route to redemption. Quick three thoughts. How do you go from being a hopeless foreign widow to the great-grandmother of King David and listed in the lineage of the Messiah. Number one, it was her kindness. She was kind to Naomi. She could have done exactly what the other sister did. She's like, okay, I'm gonna go back. You, hey, send a letter. Let me know if everything turns out all right. But she knew there was nobody to take care of her. She knew that she probably didn't have the strength to go out and glean in the fields, that somebody had to go be there and be with Naomi. She knew life would be hard for Naomi. She knew Naomi had no hope. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but we're in this thing together. One of the translations of the Bible say this about Ruth. When Boaz first meets her and he comes like, hey, if you need some water, you go get it. He says, listen, I've seen your love and kindness that you have shown to your mother-in-law, Naomi. That's the first way that Boaz describes her was her kindness. Then the night that she goes and reveals to him, hey, I you want to get married, I'll get married. You know, like that. He says to her, he goes like, girl, you are so kind to me. I'm old. I ain't good looking. There's a lot of younger, better looking guys out there. And the kindness that you were showing me, it was her kindness. Listen, the world could use a little more kindness. Somebody sort of say amen. Sweating up here for Jesus. Secondly, it was her loyalty. When Naomi was trying to get her to leave, nope. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to sleep where you sleep. I'm going to die where you die, and your God will be my God. Listen, listen, listen. This may be the only thing you hear today. Being a committed, loyal person through thick and thin, through the good and bad, that's what makes a family strong. That's a secret ingredient to making a marriage last. That's what gives a church impact in its community. I'm not gonna quit on you. I'm not gonna walk away when it'd be easier just to go back to my people. Wherever you go, I'm gonna go where you sleep. I sleep when you hurt. I'm gonna hurt right there with you and your God will be my God. It's this idea Ruth was loyal. Loyalty. And lastly, faith. Ruth was a woman of faith. That whole, your God will be my God, that's new for her. Remember how the story started? It doesn't say it specifically, but you look at the context that Elimelech, he left Israel. He walked away from the things of God. He says, I'm gonna go my way. I'm gonna go over to Moab and maybe their God will bless me. I'm, I'm extrapolating a lot into the text. The Bible doesn't say that, but Elimelech walked away from the place and the people of God. This whole marrying your family kinsmen, Moabites didn't do that. I don't make no sense. I know it's bad grammar, but it's a real thought, right? That, like, hey, I, uh, there's an old man over here that you're kin to and you can marry him. Say, what? 
here's the deal. Your God will be my God. Your God's ways will become my ways. And Ruth had a choice to make. It was foreign to her, it didn't make any sense to her, but she trusted God's ways. God's ways work every time. This is Galatians 6, 9. Her story is Galatians 6, 9. Never get tired of doing the right thing. Never get tired of doing good. Because in due season, you will reap a harvest of blessing. Ruth did some hard stuff. She was there for Naomi. She was loyal, faithful. And she reaped this beautiful harvest of blessing. And holding his son would be her grandson in her arms. That would eventually give birth to Jesse. That would eventually give birth to David. I mean, to be the great-grandmother of the king. Begat. Conceive, bear, give birth, or to convert. Are you begat? Is Jesus your God? I'm not sure where you are today spiritually, and I know there's a lot of history in all this, and this isn't a I want to change your marriage kind of message. It's just the word of God. But to know that the word of God never comes back null and void and God may be speaking to your heart today that you are not in right relationship with him. And he's, he's pulling. Like you've, maybe even you felt that as you first got, you walked in this room. Like you didn't know any of the songs, but something was stirring. And here in this moment, you can almost feel knocking on your heart's door. It's this invitation of God, come in, begat. Come in, be one of my children. Here's a reality. All of us are sinners. All of us have made mistakes. And while we were dead and stuck in their sin, Jesus Christ, miraculously conceived of Mary, he was fully God. He came and shed his blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. He shed his blood so that you and I could have our sins forgiven. Our part According to Romans, says to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not maybe, not might, not oughta, you will be saved. My question is, have you taken that step to confess and believe that Jesus is your Savior? If you need to do that today, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not even going to ask you to walk down the aisle. I'm not going to ask you to talk to anybody. I just simply want to lead you in a prayer because that prayer is the best way that I know how to confess and believe that you need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. So all across this room, with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody moving around, don't put your stuff away, just, just give me one second, because maybe the person sitting next to you needs to, to, to have this moment of confession and belief. Or, or maybe it's you. If that's you today, just pray this prayer. Right there at your seat, just whisper this. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. Because I need you. Would you forgive me? Would you begin to change me? You come into my life. You save me. Make me your child. I don't want that old life anymore. Today, Jesus, I surrender my whole life to you. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed. You're here today. I'm not going to embarrass you. 
You don't have to stand up. You don't have to walk the aisle. I just want to pray for you. But if you prayed that prayer, I'm asking you just, nobody's looking around. Slip up your hand. Anybody here today? Slip it up real high. Anybody here? Okay. All right, I see a young man. Anybody else? Slip it up real high. God, you see the hands, hearts that are here today. People coming home, just sensing your spirit, pulling them, saying yes to that invitation of salvation. God, I pray, this is not an emotional decision. We know that. It's a decision of faith. Pray, God, that you just help them lock that in. Holy Spirit, seal that in their heart because the enemy is going to try to keep them stuck or talk them out of it or what have you. Lord, today, this is the day of salvation. I pray, Lord, that the moment where they just surrender their life to Christ, let it be eternally. Father, just imprinted in their life. May they just bank their faith on this moment. God, I love being a part of a church. Pastor Matt shared earlier, just the number of kids and teenagers giving their life to Christ. Father, the community organizations we're just partnering with and sharing with and, and supporting. Father, I love being a part of a church that's willing to do whatever it takes short of sin to see someone give their life to Christ. In the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody says, come on, would you put your hands together for Jesus this morning? I, never... I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.